Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. All right, cease this Sunday. We're going to get to preaching this morning. Um, before we start this morning, um, I want to actually take a moment and just pray um, for two people, right? So y'all might have, might have noticed that Kevin, our worship leader, is not here today. Kevin actually had an episode the other day that landed him in the hospital, um, and I think he's going to be okay, but nevertheless, I want to pray for him, all right? So we're going to pray for Kevin Hubbard, and then also I have a partner by the name of Charles McCain who's been dealing with heart issues, fairly young guy. Um, he was here for um, our, the, my birthday party a couple weeks ago, but Charles, he fell out last week, ended up being taken to Mayo Clinic. And, um, and they told him at Mayo, they're like, we're not sending you home until we find a heart for you. Well, within that week, they found a heart that quick, which is absolutely crazy to me. So they found him a heart. They did the surgery on Thursday. And so, you know, I want to pray that his body takes the heart because sometimes that's a really hard part of the process. But what's really interesting that I wanted to share with you um, is his wife put up a post the other day that, um, excuse me, not his wife, his sister, that her son, his nephew, um, is a you know part-time EMT driver, right? And the other day he gets called to the airport to go pick up a heart. And he goes to pick up this heart and he rushes over to Mayo Clinic Thursday morning and never realized he was actually taking his own uncle his heart. How crazy is that? But anyway, if y'all could just be in agreement really quick before we start, I want to pray for the service. I want to pray for them as well. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just praise you, Father. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy, Lord. God, we thank you that, um, that you loved us, Father, Lord. The Bible, the Word says that you loved us, Father, Lord, even when we were in our mess, Father, Lord. You planned for us to be yours before the beginning of time, before we even formed in our mother's womb, Father, Lord. You were mindful of us already. So we're not here today because of our goodness or our virtue, Father, Lord. Um, we are here because you landed us here, Father Lord, as we are. You landed us here, Father Lord. You, you sent your son to do the redeeming work of, of bringing us out of darkness, Father Lord. You have shown your light into our hearts, Father Lord, and put something in us that compels us and draws us and makes us cry out, Father, and yearn for you, Lord. So we praise you first and foremost for that. Father, Lord, you have full credibility with us as a healer, Father. You do what you want to do, and we trust you with it. Whether things happen or where they don't happen, Father, Lord, we still call you sovereign in it all. And you know better than us, and we submit to that, Father, Lord. But you did say that we could actually call on you, Father, Lord. So right now, we call on you and ask for healing for Kevin, and we ask for healing for Charles, Father, Lord. We pray for the doctor's hands that are entrusted over them right now, that you would give them wisdom and how they... Um, are making decisions about them, Father Lord. So we pray that there is just a, um, a miraculous um, healing process that takes place for both of them, Father Lord, and that they find themselves in better shape than even when they went in there, Father Lord. And I just pray for their families. I pray for Charles' wife, Cheryl, as they, um, I know this is just hard for the family and children and everybody else to look on and have to go through this process. And I pray that you would give them a peace that surpasses understanding, Father. And we, uh, we send that out and, 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 and uh, leave that at your feet, Father, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. 
If you want to jump in the scripture with us this morning, if you have your Bibles with you or if you're working off your phone, you can actually go to, um, we're going to be in Romans 8 this morning. Just for the sake of disclosure, I'm going to be, um, I'm going to be reading a whole lot this morning. Um, I might get on your nerves with it. You're going to be like, I think this brother forgot his sermon and just start reading, all right? But there's nothing I can preach that's better than what's in the Word, right? And so what we're going to do is we're going to actually work our way after Romans 8. We're going to work down to Luke 24, and I'm actually going to read the whole chapter to you. I'm going to read about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here celebrating today. But I'm hoping that um, the, the trip, the, the walk we take towards this text, towards Luke 24, will put you in a new place and a new esteem for the resurrection. So when you hear the story, you could kind of chew on it a little bit different, right? And so one of my things, one of my beliefs when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so we do Easter every year, right? And um, we do Easter. Easter has all this stuff attached to it. There's, um, you know, pastels. There's bunnies. There's all type of crazy stuff. There's myths about pagan rituals, all type of stuff, right? Things as believers, we're not enslaved to none of these things at all. But one of the reasons that we actually celebrate Easter is to actually, it's a monument for us to actually celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So the part, the, this, despite what anybody else might have done with it before or is going to do with it today that we wouldn't believe in, for us today, we're actually here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can y'all say amen? That's why we're here, right? So we redeem the day in that sense, right? or were redeemed for the day. And so we're going to celebrate the resurrection, but I don't think that you can actually appreciate the resurrection unless you can actually celebrate and grasp and understand the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, right? It's just, it, just, it just doesn't go together. You can't skip over and you can't, un- you can't actually chew on it and appreciate it if you don't understand the weightiness of what happened on the cross. And so we didn't do anything for Good Friday, so we're going to slightly dab um, and talk about Good Friday a little bit um, and talk about the brokenness in the world, right? The, what, what the, the thing that illuminates the cross, the work on the cross, and the resurrection. So I want you all to take that journey with me this morning, all right? If you're a believer, you're going to groan a bit. I don't want to lead you into a depression, but I'm going to push on some heavy stuff. But we're going to roll through. Y'all with me? Say amen. I'm going to make y'all howl all day. All right, come on. All right, there you go. I just want to make sure we're awake. All right, let me read Romans 8. I'm going to read through uh, 18 through 25, starting Romans 8, 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is Paul talking. And he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So a couple things there. Let me kind of bring us 
get, us, get our footing on this scripture, right? So Romans 8.18 is pretty much a snapshot. Um, Paul is talking about this thing where, and many of you will feel this and understand this, where we look at the earth, we look at the news every day, we look in the mirror at ourselves, and we see that something is going on where it seems like the earth is frustrated really, really bad. It's like we have our heroes and some of our politicians that we vote for and that we love and everything. We're like, yeah, and then we're like, oh, no, they're, they're, they're shysty, right? It's like whatever we keep putting on a, a, a pedestal and say this is hope, it keeps crumbling before us. And, and, and Paul in this scripture is kind of grabbing on the fact that, yeah, this is actually it. He, and he's talking as a believer. He's saying, you know, the, the, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he's actually, he's actualizing this, this grief and this hardness and this rough stuff and looking at the world and grieving what he actually sees. And he's actually leveraging it with the promise and hope that comes in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, this stuff is ugly. Yes, indeed. But it's not even worth comparing to what's coming up the street. Y'all get where I'm coming from? Y'all with me? He uses things like this. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing. For the creation was subjected to futility. He says in verse 21 that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. He is talking about this when he says subject to futility. You know how somebody goes, Dag, it just seems like that thing is just damned to fail. You ever heard somebody say that? You ever heard, you ever heard that phrase before? Y'all can speak to me. Talk to me now. Come on now. Y'all ever heard that phrase before? Maybe I'm just old or whatever. Y'all ever heard of Knight Rider? All right, anyway, I'm just playing with y'all. All right. The Facts of Life, anybody ever seen that show? Anyway, all right, I'm just playing. But he's saying, he's like, it's subject to futility. It's broken. It actually, let me explain to you what the word futility means so you can rock with me a little bit better. Futility means this, it means incapable of producing any result. Ineffectiveness, useless, not successful, right? Related words are this, fruitless, worthless, impractical, ineffective, vain, insufficient, hollow, ineffectual, useless, unsuccessful, unproductive, unprofitable. He's saying our creation is subjected to futility. It's a big statement. It's a big statement because I think when we start dancing around, when we stop like playing the flattery game, when we actually look in the mirror and we just deal with some of the brokenness that's really, really, that we really have to move in every day, it gets really ugly, right? When you get involved in others people, other people's lives and you, you, go, you go serve them and you start seeing the brokenness in people's lives, it gets really, really heavy to look at. And it's a really ugly thing if you don't have hope in the gospel. And Paul is kind of working that out there, but he's leaning it into this hope where he says the whole creation has been groaning. He's acknowledging that, so, acknowledging that, but he says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there's this thing where he's like planted in this idea like this thing is ugly, but one day it's going to be made all right. You understand? Y'all with me so far? You ever watch like a movie when like a hero or somebody like he like they like die at the end of the movie or whatever, but like they're forecasting the next part when there's going to be revenge or whatever. And like they go to the grave and they're like, I'll be back. <laughs> like it's ugly. They dying, but they like it's coming, Jack. You'll see all this going to get made right. Right. 
He subjected the creation to futility and hope that we would not be misled by misplaced hope. God in his goodness for us, for, in his goodness towards us, did not want us walking around having hope in something that isn't hope. That's a really ugly thing too. Like a lot of times, and you've probably done this before, like we actually come up with ideologies that actually just help us sleep at night. And they're not really real. You, I'm sure you've talked to some people before, whatever, where you're like, you know, you're like, hey, you got a situation on your hands, you got a problem. They're like, you know, I hear you, but you know, I'm just gonna power through. And you're like, no, you're not, you're gonna go to prison. You're gonna go to jail. You know what I'm saying? Like, where they're like, they're just making up an ideology, uh, ideology, or just some type of thought process, whatever it is to comfort themselves actually through it. And it makes them personally feel hopeful, but it's a deception. And they may not be able to see it, but everybody standing outside of them is like, that's not gonna work out. That doesn't work out well. We've seen this story, it doesn't end well. Y'all understand where I'm at? It's subjected to futility. I don't think we want to say that. I, I think we would love to hear the narrative of like, man, you know what? We're just going to keep fighting in the earth and all the politicians and everybody's going to come together and we're going to sing Kumbaya and everything's going to be all good. It'd be a cool story, but it's not the story that's inside of the Bible. The Bible talks about the redemption of our bodies. It talks about Jesus dying on the cross, resurrecting that we could have peace, that we could have eternity with him. It, it props up Christ as the only true hope in this story and in this narrative, right? The world and his system and us constantly stumble over this futility. It's always raising his hand to let us know it's true. I want you to think about the disciples and the people having to see Jesus go to the cross, right? The crowd is screaming, die. They're screaming for blood for Jesus. And it was all good just a week ago. Palm Sunday, they were out there just waving palms. You know what I'm saying? Singing hip hop, hooray, and all that or whatever. Like they was grooving. And they laying down clothes and he's coming in on a donkey and they're like, you are the king of kings. And they're worshiping him. And next week, they're like off with his head. It's not that he isn't who he says he is. We aren't who we think we are. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. So this is, so I, I, if we all own that statement, the truth of the matter is, as we're getting drawn to Christ and becoming more like Christ, there is a futility we have to wrestle with about our own selves, right? Or we're stuck in just trying to do our thing and prove our self-righteousness and, and working on our way. But it's a way that leads to death if it's outside of Christ Jesus, right? I don't know if y'all saw it in the news or whatever, but there was a rapper just recently by the name of Nipsey Hussle that just passed away. Did anybody saw that in the news? It's on every channel in the world or whatever. But man, I was a fan of Nipsey Hussle. Not necessarily his music, but I was a fan of him because I just was impressed with his work. You know, you have a guy who's a, 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 a crip, a straight gang member, and he's trying to empower his neighborhood, and he has, he has these, these 
tech-savvy workspaces. He's, he's building platforms for cryptocurrency. He's working with Gary Vanderchuk and all these big, you know, angel investors and all these people. And he's, at the same time, he's in his neighborhood as a gang member, but trying to steer everybody to something better. And everybody's rooting for him. And then somebody shoots him right in front of his store, right in front of a whole business complex, right on video. It's been grieving my heart. You ever see somebody on the news you don't know, whatever, and you're just like, I don't know why this is messing with me so bad, but it's disturbing my peace. His death disturbed my peace, just to be frank with you. Still does. Still does. I'm just like, I'm trying to like figure it out. I'm like, God, why does that bother me the way it bothers me? People die all the time. I don't know him, but something about this bothers me. And now, at his funeral, it's one of the biggest funerals I think we've ever seen, like in the media. Sold out the Staples Center, right, where the Lakers play, to capacity. And I'm seeing people even paint pictures where they show him with thorns on his head. Because he felt like hope. But the only problem is this. Nipsey is not getting up from the grave, right? This is that groaning. This is that thing where the earth is broken, where you can have a hero and they seem like they're jetting to the moon and then the shuttle's taking off and we're going to the moon, but then it just blows up right before your eyes. While we're all standing watching, chanting, like, yes, we're going to another level. And it's frustrated. The creation is frustrated in a way and it's and it, and it, and it bound to this futility where it's like, I'm going to sweep the, your feet from up under you every time. Because God in his goodness to us is saying, I am not going to let you make an idol bigger than me for your sake. For your sake, because I love you. I'm not going to let you find your trust in something else. So he frustrates it. Our heroes, all of them, I don't care who it is. Bill Cosby, Nipsey, the father from seventh heaven, politics, husbands, wives, pastors, bosses, friends, your kids. They will injure you in a way that just encouragement will not make it go away. It will leave you confounded because we're just, we're, we're mere mortals. We have flesh. So only hope is in Christ Jesus, right? Then there's us. There's us and our sin. And that sin often looks like us not saying we even have sin. Right? We prop up a lot of the patriarchs from the Bible and we put them on pictures and everything else or whatever, and, and we're like, man, this great person, this and that, da da da. And we skip over their brokenness as a part of the puzzle. Because even in churches today or whatever, people are going to romanticize so many things about the scriptures and everything and the patriarchs and everything else. And, 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 and God used them in amazing ways, but a lot of them were broken vessels like me and you. There were broken vessels like me and you. Paul says in Romans 7, he says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, right? You want to know Paul's, Paul's vibe? Paul's vibe is, wretched man that I am. 
Not, oh, I just a good Christian out here just serving the Lord. You know me. Huh? What? I didn't hear you talking over there. I was over here praying and, oh, what'd you say? That's not Paul. Paul is aware of his futility. He's aware of what he feels, the, the place he, the part he plays in this broken creation. And so much of the revelation and the beautiful things that he's given to us in the text is not out of this virtue or goodness that he owns on himself. It's all about Jesus Christ, right? It's he's preaching Christ and Christ crucif crucified. There's no other story to tell about himself. So he's not falling for that. It all points to that cross. This brokenness leads us to the cross. You know, when I became a believer, right, I swear to you, I grew up in a Christian home, and I had said the sinner's prayer like 400 times. All right? Every time I got in trouble, I don't care. I'm grounded. Jesus saved me. Lord, God save a brother. Save, I'm saying, look, all the way up until my early 20s or whatever, I done been in the jail, juvenile, I done said so many prayers, and after a while I was like, what's this all for? He's not listening. But then one day, the prayer changed, and this is what changed about the prayer. It wasn't that I wisened up or anything else, and God's mercy and his goodness to me, he broke me. He broke me in a way where that prayer sounded different. Number one, I wasn't asking God to save me and just roll with me so I can get my plan on. I literally was in front of him like, take my entire life because I realized there's nothing else out there at all. I realized that everything I touch, actually I break. I'm, 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 uh, he, he's allowing me to look at my track record. I'm like, you know what, God, like, I see that there is a trend here. What I put my hands to gets destroyed. You get where I'm coming from? I'm not trying to cut no deals anymore. God in his goodness had, had brought me to this place where he's like, your efforts are futile. Do you get where I'm coming from? They lead to nothing. They're vanity. Even the virtuous things you think you put before me are vanity. Y'all know the, the story of the thief on the cross, right? When Jesus dies on the cross, he's in between two thieves. But I just want to concentrate on one thief. He's next to the one thief, and this thief says to Jesus, he says, Lord, I deserve to be up here. This is him. This is his sinner's prayer. He's on the cross next to Jesus. He goes, Lord, you're innocent. I deserve to be right where I am. God in that moment had given him, him the eyes to go back and take a little stock. He says, I done messed up everything I put my hands to. They are absolutely right to pin me to this cross and kill me. I deserve to die. I am a part of the problem. And Jesus says, today you're going to join me in paradise. That's how the cross and the value of the cross landed on this thief. He didn't lean over to Jesus and pass him a resume of all the stuff he thought was good. He said, Jesus, I have nothing to give at all. Y'all with me? Y'all still awake? I want to read through um, Psalm 51. I'm just going to read verse 1 through 10. And the reason I want you to read this is because I want you to see David. David, King David, who killed Goliath. Um, talk about him. He's a hero to us in so many ways. 
But when we look in the scriptures, we see a man who was very much like Paul, who is wretched. Like if we actually knew him, if he was a pastor and we were aware of his transgressions, there is no way in the world we would let him near us, if I'm just going to be honest with you. But nevertheless, the Lord is delighted in David, right? Because of his truthfulness and his admission. So I want you to hear David's heart as I read through Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your, your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done, and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David talks to the Lord with a broken and a contrite heart. He doesn't come with a resume. He comes with a dire need. He comes with an awareness of his futility, which magnifies the beauty of the cross. David wouldn't see the cross actually happen in Jesus' sacrifice, but nevertheless, Jesus responds to that type of cry of the heart by laying on the cross and dying for our sins. God offers his son Jesus as a remedy and answer to the futility that we find in the creation and as the creation. Isaiah 53 5 says this, but he who was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. So, I want to move on to the resurrection, but before I do, I just want to point at the cross really quick. So what we see and what we're talking about right now is a count of patriarchs inside of the word, and I think all of us can look into our own lives, and, and if we work through some honesty and work through our brokenness and are truthful about some things, we could find ourselves in the same place that David finds himself in where it's like, God, I don't have anything to offer you. I do have what I, what, I, what I do want, Father Lord. I'm hoping that you're the type of savior that actually comes and just wipes sins away, right? I hope you come and you actually wipe sins away and make everything brand new. That's what David's asking for. He's not saying, God, I'm going to work it out and I'm going to be super good and, and I'm going to make you proud of me one day. He's saying, God, I need you to have the type of mercy that goes to the chalkboard and just erases everything. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. Jesus on the cross takes our filthy resume as his own. As his own. He is a perfect spotless lamb. And he, he lays on the cross and he receives the wrath that is set apart for us. And, Jesus re and God releases his wrath on his son. And his Bible says he was pleased to do it. Because in doing it, for us who are called to his, by his name, we were being redeemed in the process. So, he receives the wrath. 
for our filthy resume. And then he passes us his perfect resume. Y'all with me? The Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. Well, you can't appreciate it if you, realize, if you don't realize how dirty your resume is. If you think your resume is, resume is cute, you're in bad shape. I want to read something to you really quick. Have you ever heard of, any of y'all ever heard of a gentleman by the name of Simon Greenleaf? Not even one single person. Well, don't feel bad because I didn't know who he was until I started studying this too. I wanted to take that moment to act like y'all were crazy, like I was just this academic and like, how could you have never heard of Simon? You know what I mean? But I, I, I'm not going to do it to you. I had to go back, go back and repent, whatever, but I don't have too many smart moments. I wanted to use it, but I'm, I'm going to fall back. Anyway, let me read this to you real quick. Simon Greenleaf died October 6, 1853. He was born on December 5, 1783. Greenleaf was an agnostic some say atheists, who believed the resurrection of Jesus Christ was either a hoax or a myth. No stranger to the truth and to the proof of the truth, Greenleaf was a principal founder of the Harvard Law School and a world-renowned expert on evidence. Challenged by one of his students one day to consider the evidence for the resurrec resurrection of Jesus Christ, Greenleaf set out to disprove it, but ended up concluding that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was indeed fact, not fiction. Being a man of conviction and reason, and in accordance with his conclusions, Greenleaf converted from agnosticism to Christianity. His life and works went on to inspire such scholars as John Warwick, Montgomery, Josh McDowell, Ross Clifford, and some other guys or whatever who I would like to tell you I'm aware of, but I'm not. Anyway, let's keep reading. Greenleaf's most famous apologetic is an essay entitled, Testimony of the Evangelist Examined by the Rules of Evidence Administered in Courts of Justice. Therein, Greenleaf applied to the evidentiary rules of his day to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and concluded that the admissible evidence admitted thereby was sufficient to prove in any fair court of law that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was indeed fact, not hoax, myth, or fiction. In short, Greenleaf reasoned that the copies of the original Gospels extant, i.e. known in, the, in, in existence, in his time were at least as authentic as the other works of antiquity, the authenticity, authenticity of which was acceptable in courts of law, that the veracity of the testimonies contained therein was demonstrable by internal and external examination, i.e. by examining the consistencies and revolving and resolving the paradoxes contained between them, and by comparing the gospel accounts to the corroborating works of other known writers at the time, such as Tacticus, Josephus, and Suetonius, and that the most plausible, the most reasonable conclusion to be drawn therefrom was that Jesus Christ not only lived and died, but that he rose again from the grave. I wanted to read that to you because I'm about to read Luke 24 to you in a minute, but I thought this was extremely in interesting because when you, um, if I could just highlight what he actually did there, when you talk about, you know, when we look, we, 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 we deal with a court of law, there are certain um, systems and processes that you apply to try to come to a conclusion about what is actually fact or fiction, right? Because none of us can actually be standing there, right? And so we have to work through certain rules that, for the most part, will lean to us finding real truth. And so my buddy Simon Greenleaf here, 
who's a genius pretty much based on his work at Harvard Law and the fact that we still use his work so many years later, takes the scripture to task. And the things that he studied were the text, and he also studied the writings of other people, other writers that were alive during the time of, um, um, through the times of Christ or whatever, because there's other people who are watching who are not believers who are actually scribing what's going on. Basically like, you know, the, the, you know, the New York Times, so to speak, or whatever of the day, um, the Jerusalem Times, or I don't know. But, but that's basically what was happening there. I just thought that that was compelling or whatever and just wanted to share that with you. But real quick, when I get ready to read this, I want you to posture yourself to hear about the resurrection, right? With what we just talked about concerning our own sin and what the cross means for it, our hope, salvation, Jesus being our, our, our sacrifice, right? Sacrificing himself on the cross for, for our sins and our place. Um, I want you to kind of process that, and I want you to listen to me as I read this, um, and I want you to try to make it personal, right? Uh, you know, the, you have to understand, like, the disciples, the followers of Christ had just watched um, Jesus, who they've been rolling with all of these past couple of years, um, and believe him to be the savior of the world. He gets brutalized right in front of them, right? Um, and this part right here is an account three days later of what happens, and so... Imagine being one of them, or just imagine what this actually means and just working through it. Y'all with me? All right. Don't doze off if you close your eyes. Whatever posture you get in to concentrate, do that thing, all right? So Luke 24, it's kind of long. I tried to get, like, you know, Morgan Freeman or somebody's voice to read this, but I couldn't find anywhere where they were reading through the scriptures or whatever. I thought you would enjoy it more. All right. It says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to be to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. That very day, two of the men were going to the village named Emos, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a, prof a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, 
and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned and crucified him, condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the stable with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did our hearts, did our, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for, disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. My man, that's what I would have got too. Anyway, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. That's the resurrection. Let me talk to you about it really quick. When Jesus, <clears throat> when he reveals himself to his disciples, 
he tells them, look at my hands and look at my feet, right? He shows them the holes, right, in his feet because what he's saying to them is I've died and I've risen and this is my receipt right here, right? There's a legal requirement. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And I don't care what kind of sin you've done, sin is sin in God's eyes, right? And so he says the wages of sin is death. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, he pays, he pays the wage for us by dying on the cross for our sins. So when he shows his hands to the disciples, he's saying, check it out, look, it's handled, right? This is declaring to them that he's king of kings, he's lord of lords, that he's the spotless lamb, right? And, and, and here's the thing. The reason the resurrection is so important is because the grave cannot hold an innocent, sin-free, spotless lamb. Do you get where I'm coming from? This is why the resurrection is a significant part of the story. Because the grave can hold sin. The wages of sin is death. So if he wasn't who he was, then he wouldn't have got up out of the grave. So when the resurrection is proclaimed, the reason we got to like grab on that thing with so much joy is because it tells us. It's the exclamation point that says Jesus is who the word says he is. He's Savior. He's Lord of all. You can't serve that sentence of death out on someone who's innocent. And he's the only one who is innocent. He's the only one that's innocent. He laid down to pay for our sins and rose up as proof of purchase. It's what makes us his. And the good news I have for you today is that the grave is empty. It's empty. It's empty. And that means that Romans 8.1 stands. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And John eleven twenty five 25 says this. Jesus is conversing and he says to someone, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. When Jesus raises up on the cross for us who are believers, it means that though we may taste death, that we will not taste death. We will live forever in eternity with him. That's the promise. That is the hope. When Paul is talking in, in, in the scripture and he's talking about groaning inwardly and looking for the redemption of his body and, and, and our bodies and that we are looking towards the future, he is talking about this thing that is secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Eternity. That we will never die. That we will live forever. That everything that is broken in this world, that Christ is going to make it all good. He is going to serve out, he's going to, dish out uh, he's going to dish out judgment, and he is going to wipe every tear for us that are his. And so he boldly declares, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But then at the end of that statement, he asked this question to the person he was talking to, and I'm going to ask it to you all. He says, do you believe this? 
<laughs> That's a personal question for us all. He says, do you believe this? Like, where are you at personally? Like, look in your heart and examine your heart for a second. Do you actually believe that this is the truth? What do you do with the grief and brokenness that you deal with, that you see happening in the earth? Do you have, you know, kind of this thing that you just do or whatever, something that you've romanticized about life and that it's going to all work out? Talk to a few older people who have experienced tragedy in life. They'll tell you it's a fairy tale really quick. I'm only 42 years old, I can tell you that. You see enough people die, enough people you love, enough people you serve and watch they feed and they spit in your face and everything else or whatever. Like it does not work out. There's some beautiful bright moments that we get to marvel in, but life does not serve everything up on a platter and work the way we want it to work. And God jumped in front of that whole thing with his son Jesus Christ to give us a hope that's sure that we could stand on and put all of our trust in. And he made the exclamation point, Jesus on the cross, and then made a bigger exclamation point with him rising up from the grave. So we have to ask the question, do you believe this? In John 6, in John 6, these people come up to Jesus and they go, Jesus, what do we have to do to be doing the work of God? Like, what is the work of God? How do I do that thing? And he says, the work of God is this. It's believing in the one that the Father sent. That's the work. We don't do religious work trying to walk the line and be as good and play the game as much as we can. We spend our time bathing in the beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and believing that it's true for us, that there's no longer condemnation for us because of the work he did, right? What does Satan slide up in your ear and do? What does all these voices in our head do? They slide up next to you and they go, yo, I know what you did last summer. I know you got your happy face on in front of everybody, but you're a bum. You're, you're whatever. Like, it's in your ear like that, right? You're not enough. You'll never be enough. You're not lovable. Satan is always trying to beat us down with these lies. And, he, and, 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 and what he does is he uses a game to say, you're disqualified. But here's Paul saying, wretched man that I am, but thank you to Jesus Christ. Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ is our only hope, and he is a sure hope, and he's a good hope, and he's a good God, and he loves you today. And so if you're in this room right now, you don't know Christ is your Lord and Savior, it's not just by chance. It's not just by because Easter or whatever. You're here for a reason. If you don't know him, then I, there's no way in the world I could preach this sermon and not bring this here, right? And I'm not going to ask you to jump up and do anything and throw your hands in the air, but I do just want to appeal to your heart with the gospel this morning. Like if you've been just like wrestling with it you're like, I feel God kind of doing this thing, kind of drawing me in, like trust him, lean all the way in, lean all the way in. Because what you feel is not your virtue and your goodness at all. It is actually God, the creator of everything, creator of the, the whole universe, is actually making an appeal to your heart and drawing you towards him. Trust him. Follow him. Lean into that thing, right? Lean into him. Like whatever, the, like he says, he says, preach repentance. Bring your sins. Bring your brokenness. Bring whatever skeletons you have in the closet and just lay them before Jesus. He's already handled it. He laid on the cross for it. He laid on the cross for it. And then bathed inside of this good, beautiful thing that, that this, this, this freedom we have in Christ Jesus because we don't have to work and figure it out. We get to rejoice in the work that he's already done for us. 
that he's taken all of our sins to the cross and paid the price. And now we just need to get to rejoice in being sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. God, we just worship you, Father. We thank you for bringing us here this morning. Um, God, I, I thank you, Father, that uh, you are just beyond us, that we can rest in, that you are sovereign, that you are bigger than us. Um, I don't know what waits outside of the doors for everybody in here. But there's no telling what kind of problems and issues we all face individually. Um, but I thank you, Father Lord, that we don't have to walk around and be tortured by that because we could rest in the fact that you've actually already won it all. Your word says that this life, though an important split second, um, is only just a mist. And eternity awaits. And that eternity will even be rooted in death or will be rooted in life. Um, God, there is no way that I would deem it to be correct or right or righteous for us to have experienced such life in you and to not share it. Um, not because we're good, but because we serve a good God who loves wretches like us. We don't even deserve to be here. Um, but it's because of you, because of Jesus, that we are here. And Father, for that we worship in you, we praise you for that. As much as we can muster up and know how, Father Lord, but it's still all you that works through us. God, I pray for anybody in this room today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, Father Lord, that you will begin to touch your heart, their hearts. Holy Spirit will touch them um, in a way that's beyond us. It's just, you know, just mere people, Father Lord. Um, we don't want to use fancy words, and we don't want to manipulate anybody. So I pray, Father Lord, that you would do the work that you seem that you feel fit, Father. So we just trust you with that. We thank you for this time together today um, with everybody in the room here. Thank you for our church. Thank you for everybody that serves here, for our worship team. Um, but Father, I pray that you would mend our hearts together more and more. Um, help us to decrease and you would increase in us, Father. So we praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, Father. We thank you, Father, Lord, that the power that resurrected him from the grave is resurrecting us in our wretchedness and in our sinfulness. Help us, Father Lord, and, uh, and empower us, Father Lord, that in our weakness, your strength will come forward. So we give you praise, Father. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.